Nicodemus in John chapter 3 talked about Jesus performing signs that proved he was from God. But only two of those signs are mentioned in the Gospel of John before Nicodemus said this. Nicodemus isn't mentioned in the other Gospels. In the previous chapter, John, uh, Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist, and Jesus had selected some of his disciples. At a wedding feast, Jesus had performed his first recorded miracle when the hosts of the feast ran out of wine. Jesus changed... Uh, changed six pots full of water into six water pots full of very good wine. The head waiter tasted the wine and called over to the bridegroom and told him that most people serve the good wine first. Then when everybody has had plenty to drink and their senses are dulled, they serve the poor wine. But at this party, they kept the best wine for last. After staying a few days with his family and his disciples in Capernaum, Jesus went to Jerusalem because the Passover celebration was near. When Jesus went into the temple, he saw a busy marketplace inside the temple. Jewish people come to the Passover from miles around. <clears throat> they fulfill the law by going to the temple to sacrifice animals. Some people don't have animals with them when they come into town. They buy them at the temple to sacrifice them at the temple. Other people bring their best lambs to sacrifice, only to be told by those in charge that their animal is not good enough to sacrifice. However, the temple merchants would be glad to sell them at an animal that meets the highest standards of the temple. Maybe they will even be allowed to trade in the defect, deficient lamb they brought in for a better one. in addition to a fee for the upgrade. The next customer doesn't know he's buying the deficient trade-in, which now meets the standards of the temple. Hey, it's going to be killed anyway. When the worshipers come to the temple, they come from various places. Back home, they might do some barter deals to buy and sell from local merchants. In that way, they avoid using Roman money, which might be scarce, and which will probably increase the Roman taxes. But they will bring the Roman money to the temple to buy animals for sacrifice. However, Roman money is not good enough for temple business. They didn't want that nasty pagan money defiling their temple. So, to buy animals at the temple, a Jew needed to go to the temple money changers and turn in the pagan money in order to exchange it for the sanctified money which is used to buy animals that meet the high standards of the temple. The money changes, the money changers would charge what the market would bear for their temple money. The rate might change according to the demand. On a busy day, the profit margin was bigger. A shrewd money changer could size up a customer looking at how richly he was dressed or how heavy his money bag appeared to be and increase the exchange rate accordingly. Someone had to manage all this commerce. The temple priests took on that responsibility, getting paid well for their dedication to this temple business. Jesus walked to the temple and saw this den of thieves. What Jesus did next was not a miracle, but a demonstration of authority given by God. It was something worthy of an Old Testament prophet. 
he was definitely performing a sign. Jesus got some cords together, likely borrowed from one of the merchants. He braided the cords together and made a whip. He used it with skill and great authority. He drove out the animals and the men who were selling the animals and the money changers. He overturned the tablets being used by the money changers, the tables being used by the money changers for their business, scattering ill-gotten coins all over the place. He freed the animals from their captors by destroying the cages and stalls. He was a stampede. Chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. The temple authorities questioned his authority to clear out the temple. They asked Jesus for a sign of his authority. He had just given it to them. He told them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. His body was the temple he was referring to. He was giving a prophecy of his death, burial, and resurrection. That would be their sign. They didn't understand. They thought he was talking about the temple they were standing in. Jesus might have shown other signs and miracles between that conversation and chapter 3. John doesn't detail those in chapter 2 except to say in verse 22 that many believed in him seeing his signs that he was showing. Going into chapter 3, we don't know all that Nicodemus has seen when he goes one evening to talk to Jesus. But it seems like in reading the Gospel of John that Nicodemus was talking about how Jesus cleared out the money changers and other animals from the temple and maybe also referring to the wedding feast miracle. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, one of those temple rulers. Nicodemus might have been in the temple when Jesus cleared out the merchants and reclaimed the house of God. Nicodemus might have been convicted in his heart that Jesus did the right thing. Maybe Nicodemus was at the wedding feast and found out who provided that good wine. We don't know what inspired Nicodemus to go find Jesus that night and take on the role of student instead of his usual role of rabbi and teacher at the temple. He said to Jesus, We know you are a teacher who has come from God. When Nicodemus said we, I don't think he was talking about his fellow Pharisees. <clears throat> I think he was talking about the others who were hanging out with Jesus that night. We don't know if they were sitting around a campfire or lounging in the living room of one of the followers of Jesus, but when Nicodemus said, we know you are from God, he was identifying with the followers of Jesus. We know from the context of the book of John and the other Gospels that most of the other Pharisees and Sadducees would not have claimed that Jesus came from God. Jesus didn't respond by saying, Hey, Nick, how you doing? Thanks for coming to visit. Jesus was the teacher. Nicodemus was a student. Jesus started teaching right away, and Nicodemus didn't know how to respond. Jesus told him he couldn't see the kingdom of God unless he was born again. He said this to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a recognized authority on the kingdom of God. 
People would come to Nicodemus to hear his teachings on the kingdom of God. Jesus was saying to forget all that. Nicodemus had to be born again and start all over. I have the Rari Study Bible. In the commentary at the bottom of the page, it says that when Jesus said you must be born again, a literal translation is born from above, though <clears throat> the word also means born again. Both meanings of the word are merged in the context of what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, especially when he tells Nicodemus he must be born of the Spirit. This is not to be confused with a Hindu belief in reincarnation. The context of these verses make it clear that Jesus means something else entirely. Nicodemus is confused. He says, hey, I'm an old man. I can't crawl into my mother's womb and be born again. Jesus tells him he must be born of water and the spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Some believers think Jesus is saying that you have to be baptized to be saved. Others say the water refers to the amniotic fluid that comes out of the womb in a natural birth. That seems to go with the context when Jesus talked about being born of the flesh and then of the spirit. One thing is certain, the new birth is from God through the spirit. We know that being baptized is not being born. It is a picture of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. It can also be a picture of the believer dying to the old life and rising to new life in Jesus. Jesus compared those who were born of the Holy Spirit to the wind. It goes where it will, and you can't see it, but you can hear the sound of it and see the effect of it. Nicodemus is still confused, and Jesus notes that Nicodemus is a leader of Israel who doesn't understand important spiritual truth. It looks like here that Jesus is telling Nicodemus that all this theological knowledge is not worth much if he's not born again. He needs to let it go and believe in Jesus. In John 3, 11 through 15, Jesus is chiding Nicodemus for not believing what Jesus has to say. He tells Nicodemus, no one, including the Pharisees, has ascended to heaven except the one who has de descended from heaven, who is Jesus himself. Jesus compares himself to the bronze snake lifted up by Moses in the wilderness as commanded by God. The people were suffering from poison snake bites and were told that if they only looked at the bronze snake that Moses was holding up, they would be saved from death and suffering by poison snake bites. Nicodemus, a scholar of the scriptures, knew about this event. Jesus said that he would be lifted up so that all who looked and believed would have eternal life. This was a prophecy. Jesus was talking about when he would be lifted up on a cross. John 3.16 is a verse all of us can quote. If anyone believes in him, that person will not perish in hell fire, but will have everlasting life. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? If we really believe in him, we trust in him, and we follow Jesus. If we really believe in Jesus, how can we not follow him? In Matthew 7, 26, Jesus said, Anyone who hears his words 
and doesn't put them into practice is like the man who built his house on the sand. It looks good, but it won't last. Believing in Jesus is not the same as just believing about Jesus. In James 2.19, James said that even the demons believe there is one God and shudder when they think about him. But to believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus. If we don't follow Jesus, we are following the ways of the world that the devil sets up to distract us. Matthew 25.41 tells us hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. If we follow the distractions set up by the devil, in the end we will follow the devil home to the hellfire prepared for the devil and his angels. In John 14, 2 and 3, Jesus tells us he is preparing a place for us. If we follow Jesus, in the end, we will follow him home to the home he has prepared for us. They were 13 men traveling together. They traveled light, mostly with the clothes on their backs, some carried packs, which they took turns carrying. They didn't ride horses or even donkeys. They walked that day, that dry, dusty road, going where their leader decided they should go. They came to a town and stopped to rest outside of town. Their leader sent them into town to buy provisions while he stayed behind. They had eaten the last of their food at breakfast. John 4, 1 through 6, says, They made this trip after Jesus heard that the Pharisees heard that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing more people than John the Baptist was. Why would that be important to Jesus? Maybe it is because Jesus didn't want to draw the attention of the Pharisees to himself. Jesus knew the Pharisees would come asking questions, interrupting his ministry, trying to put some kind of official sanctions on what he was doing. Jesus didn't have time to deal with that right then. He wanted to get out and reach and teach the people who needed to get to know Jesus. So Jesus took his men and left that area, heading toward Galilee. He purposely traveled through Samaria. Most Jews in that day would go around Samaria. The bad feelings between Jews and Samaritans went back for centuries. Their rest stop was at the town water supply. It was an ancient well, and the women of the town came out to draw water, though not usually at this time of day. <clears throat> As he waited there, a woman from the town came out to draw water. <clears throat> she was an attractive woman, 30-something years of age. I say she was attractive because she was pretty enough to have been married five times already. So maybe she is past her prime. She wore the look of a woman who no longer enjoyed life, but did what she had to do. She didn't like to come out when the other women did because they talked about her, this woman who was living in sin. Jesus watched her lower the large earthen jar from her shoulder and place it down by the well. 
Then she picked up the bucket that was tied by a long rope to a crank over the well and lowered it down into the well. And all of this, she never looked at him. She never looked him in the face. She could see when she approached the well that he was not one of her people. His clothes were not the same. Not a big difference, perhaps, but he was a stranger and he was dressed differently. He was one of those Jews. Then he spoke to her. She had heard the Jewish accent before. Yes, he was a Jew. Give me some water to drink, he said. He didn't say it harshly, but plainly. She was surprised that a Jew would speak to her. She was a Samaritan woman. Jews didn't speak to Samaritans. When the bucket filled with water, she cranked the handle and brought it up. She poured only a portion of it into her jar, enough for a man to drink. She took it over to him and gave it into his hands as, he looked, as she looked into his face. He lifted the jar to his mouth and began to drink. As he drank, she said to him, Why would you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? Jesus might have been thinking, because I am thirsty, but he saw this as a teaching opportunity. He finished drinking and handed the jar back to her as he looked her in the eye. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me and I would give you living water. Sir, she said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. And where do you get this living water? You are not greater than our ancestor Jacob, are you? He dug the well more than a thousand years ago. <clears throat> those who drink from Jacob's well will thirst again. But those who drink of the water I give shall never thirst, he said. That water will become in them a well of water springing up to eternal life. Give me this water, she said, so I will not get thirsty again, nor have to come out to the well, this well, every day. So Jesus told her to go get her husband and come back. She said she didn't have one. Jesus knew that. I know that is true, he said. You have had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Now, Jesus had her attention. How could he know that? He was a foreigner. He had to be a prophet from God to know those details about her. Here she was standing before a prophet from God, and he knew the details of her sinful life. She was embarrassed. She quickly changed the subject. She said, you are a prophet. We worship on this mountain, but the Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. What do you say, Jewish prophet? Jesus told her a time was coming and was now at hand when people who worshiped God in truth would not be concerned about the location. He said the Samaritans didn't really know who they worshiped. He said salvation comes from the Jews. The Jews knew who God was. They just didn't know God. 
He said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. She said, I know that Christ will come. When he comes, he will reveal all things to us. Jesus looked her in the eye and said, the man you are speaking to is the Christ. At that point, his followers arrived back from town. They were amazed that he had been talking with a woman, but they didn't comment. The woman left her water jar and went into town to tell the people about Jesus. She was the first female evangelist. Jesus told the woman he would give her living water if she asked for it. In Jeremiah 2.13 and 17.13, Jeremiah tells us God is a fountain of living water. In Zechariah 14.8, that, that prophet tells us about the end times when living water will flow from Jerusalem. In the New Testament, John writes that Jesus is the giver of living water here in John 4.10, again in John 7.38, and again in Revelation 7.17. In John chapter 6, we find that Jesus is also the bread of life. Starting about verse 35 and on through verse 63, Jesus, in several different ways, told his listeners that he was the bread of life. It's that those who ate his flesh and drank his blood would have eternal life. Many of those listening had a hard time receiving those words. Finally, in verse 61, Jesus said, Does this cause you to stumble? In verse 63, he said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. I think the words in John 6:37 are among the most comforting words in the Bible. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Some choices are simple, but not easy. It is, if it is simple, it should be easy. To a child, the simple choice is the easy choice. He doesn't know enough for it to be a hard choice. In Mark 10, 14 and 15, Jesus said, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. That's what Jesus said. But the older we get, the more we know, the more encumbered we get, the more complicated life becomes. Some of that complication is of our own making. Some of those burdens are put on us by others. And we don't shrug it off. So the choice is simple, but it is not necessarily easy as we get older. God loves us, but he has us in a world that doesn't love us. Jesus said to enter through the narrow gate. The other gate looks easy. It is wide. It appears that everybody is going that way. How can millions of people be wrong? 
If we look carefully, we can see that it leads downhill. Downhill is easy. Those folks going downhill seem to be having fun. Maybe they are for now, but they've entered the wrong gate. Jesus talked about the house built on the rock and the house built on the sand. Jesus was a carpenter. He knows some things about building houses. He knows a house can look good, but if the foundation is not good, the house won't last. Jesus compares house builders to two groups of people. Both groups of people have heard the words of Jesus. One group of people has followed his, the words of Jesus. They have heard the instructions on how to build and have followed the blueprint. Then they have acted on what Jesus has told them to do. The other group heard the words of Jesus and do not act on them. They don't follow instructions. They don't use the blueprint. Jesus talked about the builders. The one who followed Jesus' instructions built his house on the rock. The other built his house on the sand. A big storm came. The first house stood through the storm. The house built on sand was destroyed. If we live godly lives on this earth, following Jesus, we will get a heavenly, heavenly reward. Some of us will even see rewards on this earth. I will not agree with the name it and claim it preachers who say true believers will also have material health and wealth on this earth. It does seem to be a natural consequence of a successful godly life in this country, but we know it is, is not always so. And plenty of godless people in our country have lots of health and wealth in the here and now. On the other hand, true believers are being persecuted in other lands. Jim Elliott left the safety and security of our country to serve Jesus in a hostile place and to die there. He was not a follower of the health and wealth gospel. Because he witnessed to the primitive people in the jungles of Ecuador and because the Holy Spirit was still at work there, some more people came into the kingdom of God. The movie, End of the Spear, tells that story. Or consider Michael Rittering. His death was mentioned on one of the back pages of the newspaper. He was one of the victims of Muslim terrorists in another country, but he was noted because he was American. He was the cousin of the man married to the sister of my son's wife. I never met Michael Rittering. He used to have a business as a yacht outfitter in Florida. His wife also had a successful career. In 2011, they sold everything and moved to Burkina Faso, a country in West Africa that I never heard of. They were Christian missionaries. They already had two daughters. In Africa, they adopted two more. They worked to get girls and women out of the sex slave trade and provided education and housing and food in the name of Jesus. One day, Michael was in a meeting with a local pastor in a cafe in town. Jihadists came into the cafe killing people. 
Then they went next door and took over a hotel. They killed 28 people and would have killed more if the local police hadn't come in and killed them. In John 14, 2, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus was a carpenter. Now he is building places in heaven for his followers. I know Jesus has built a place for Michael Rittering and a place for Jim Elliot. They have houses built on the rock of Jesus.